Hey guys, you're listening to the Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm Adam Rappaport. On today's show, senior editor Julia Kramer talks to Mashama Bailey, a New York expat who is now the chef at The Gray in Savannah, Georgia. Uh, was one of our 50 best new restaurants in America in 2015. And then, because it's just beastly hot out there, I talked to Claire Saffitz and Carla Lolly Music from the BA Test Kitchen about frozen desserts, homemade, store-bought, and everything in between. Let's do this. Welcome back to New York. You are from here. Born, yes, I am. Born in the Bronx, grew up in Queens. Yes. Cooked in New York restaurants for 12 years. Ish. Ish. Yeah. <laughs> um, I did, um, right in the middle of the 12-year stint, I did four years of personal chefing. Oh. Mm-hmm. I cooked for a family, mainly a couple, on Park Avenue. Oh. So what that was, was that a like? lot of fun. It was a little throwbacky, um, you know. There was like maids' quarters that I didn't actually stay in or anything like that. But um, it was like a very old New York apartment set up for service and servants. So this particular couple was a lot older. They were in their sixties and seventies, and um, I worked in the kitchen. They lived in the other part of the house. Off to off the kitchen was the pantry and like a little room, um, bathroom, stuff like that. And then we just became friends, you know, really huh. friendly. And then you've been down in Savannah now for two years? Is that mm, yes, two years. Two years. So when you come back to New York, do you have certain spots that you always want to hit? I really haven't been back oh. to New York since I've moved down so I'm here for four days basically four nights and I'm sort of like okay I want to go to Russ and Daughters Mm. I want to go to Prune I want to go you know to Harlem I want to (laughs) go eat some jerk chicken you know so I'm like really excited to go hit some spots that I like and I really want to eat at new places too went to Upland today for lunch and that was delicious oh cool Mm -hmm. so um Are there certain things that you miss about New York? I miss everything about New York. (laughs) I didn't think that I missed it. I was so preoccupied and I was so, I'm so intrigued with Savannah and I'm so happy to be there because, you know, there's such a steep learning curve for me that I'm always engaged when I'm there. But man, like you can't, you can't beat this city. I'm just happy to be here. Yeah, it was almost like for the best that you didn't come back for yeah. those two years. I know. I would have like got homesick and been like, forget this. <laughs> so how did you, I mean, as someone, I mean, I didn't grow up in New York, but it seems like a lot of people who did stay here and can't imagine living somewhere mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. How were you convinced to move to Savannah? Um, I think I was ready to move to the South Maybe 10 years ago. And my parents, my mom is from Georgia. 
And so we traveled as a family back and forth to Georgia every summer. And so when this opportunity came up, it was right timing. I wanted to move down south in 2007. And it just, I tried, I looked at Charleston, I looked at Atlanta, and it just didn't fit. I just didn't see any reflections of me in those cities. And so going down to Savannah and visiting the building before it went under construction, it felt really good. It just felt like a good space and it felt like it was my space and that it was very doable for me to be a chef in that space. Hmm. And at that time, you were working at Prune, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and did you did you have a moment, like a realization of that you were ready to be the head chef at a restaurant, like while you were working on the line at Prune? Mm, I it, When I was working at Prune toward the end of my tenure there, I think there was a realization of me um, ready to move on and to take on more responsibility. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't quite, I was just a sous chef, but um, I was ready to create menus and and figure out what my food was and 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 manage a kitchen staff. And so what I was going to do was just do supper clubs. Hmm. And I ended up doing two before I actually got the job offer for um the Gray in Savannah. And that's when I was and that you know, like by the second one, like my cousin was like, who's older than me and he has money and, you know, like, you know, he's successful. And um, he was like, how much do you need to start a restaurant? And so that to me was really surprising because I was going to figure it out. I was like, okay, if I save 10 grand, <laughs> you know, I can like, you know, apply for a loan and maybe get like a 20 seat place or something like that. And so by the end of the second supper club, I was like, oh, wait, no, you have to have investors. That's how you do a restaurant. So I started really sort of started to think in those terms. And then I met John John Omarisano, and it just all kind of came together. And I didn't have to think about money. I just had to think about my craft and, you know, finding a, a kitchen staff and creating a menu and stuff like that, which yeah. is a lot. Yeah, that's funny <laughs> to think about. And for... Any listeners who haven't had the pleasure of going to the Gray, um, I'll just try and like describe it a little bit because it's kind of the opposite of the, or very different from a twenty seat, scraped together ten thousand dollars to make it happen restaurant. A bus station, (laughs) (laughs) in every shape and form. It's 76 seats in the main dining room. We have a front bar that seats 32. We have an outdoor dining space that seats anywhere from 32 to 36 people. Two private dining rooms, one that can seat up to 25. We figured out in our first year, we thought it was going to be up to 14, but we can squeeze 25 (laughs) people in there comfortably. And downstairs, it's 10. So... That's like a million people. So <laughs> go from, you know, a 30-seat restaurant and being a sous chef there to a restaurant that seats over 100 people, 150 people, and running it in a different city with with no one. So that was really surprising. And we have a friend in common, 
Ford Fry. He works out of Atlanta, mm-hmm. and he is friends with our design group. And Jono put me in contact with him before we opened. And I just thought I was going to go down there and figure it out, and everybody was going to, like, um, you know, give me the keys and unlock the pantries, and I was going to be able to, like, do whatever I wanted, and I was going to get the same things I got here, and it was going to be no big deal. And that's not what happened. And so knocked on doors. Some people answered. Most of them didn't. Are you talking about, like, purveyors? Purveyors, just trying to find different purveyors. Like, I wanted to do an eel dish, and everybody was like, what? No, (laughs) we don't. Well, do you want, like, smoked Japanese eel? Like, what do you want? And so I called Ford Fry, and the first thing he said was, you have no support. (laughs) And I was like... I don't. It was just, it was like, whoa, wait, he's right. He's like, that's, you're down here with no support. And that reminded me of something that you said um, in an interview that you did recently, I think it was with Eater, Mm -hmm. um, about how the diners in Savannah were in certain ways more demanding than the ones in New York. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, maybe maybe it's because I've always worked with, um, I've always come into restaurants with established clientele mm-hmm. and established menus and people who came to those places and dined, they, they came there for a reason. And starting from scratch and also trying to figure out what my food was, I was, you know, looking for inspiration and looking to people to kind of not really tell me what to cook, but to sort of guide me to what it was that they were into and what types of food they were willing to be pushed by and Mm -hmm. also the type of food that they were like, oh, no, this is too normal. Like, this is what we eat at home. And I felt like um, Savannians, they know their shrimp, you know, they know their oysters and they, you can't pull the wool over their eyes. That's how they eat at home. Like, they live on boats, and they fish, and they shrimp, and they crab. And and if you're going to come down there and do that kind of stuff, you better know what you're doing, you know? <laughs> like, you have to have a point of view about it. And I think in those ways, I feel like they were very demanding. Like, their quality was very high for that. And where in New York, you can get a box of frozen shrimp and, um, you know— it's kind of like a normal thing, you know, right. restaurants restaurant serve looks that. cool. Or you can do it in a way where people are like, it's, it's still awesome, but please, down there, I had a shrimp dish on and it was like, these shrimp are frozen, you know, this they're not fresh. And I'm like, well, I just got them today from the shrimper and they, they're very, very particular. Oh, crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, that's interesting about developing your style of food, because I think even within New York City, Prune is pretty edgy mm-hmm. in terms of their food. Mm-hmm. Um, how did your experience there inform the food that you're cooking, or were there other um, equally important influences that you drew from? Prune was a huge influence. I think one of the biggest. I mean, working with Gabrielle Hamilton, number one, she is a star. She's a rock star. And the thing that I loved about working there, which I hadn't had at any other restaurant, is she was really 
she solely encouraged the cooks to cook from them. Hmm. And that was shown through um, a family meal. So we would prepare a family meal every day, and she wanted us to, she wanted it to be real food, and she wanted us to actually dig and dig deeply and actually cook a meal that we would be proud of for the staff. And I've never worked in a place like that before. And so it's funny, like the first family meal I did was probably like a Thanksgiving dinner. It was like in fall, and it was, you know, yams and greens and big chicken and she was just kind of like okay <laughs> and I was like ta-da this is it you know it's delicious <laughs> so but I think moving forward everyone was willing to bring a little bit about what they loved about food to the table and we collaborated and we made food that we sat around and we wanted to eat and how do you define your food I, my food is Southern. Um, it's Southern American food, but it's so layered with French influences and Italian influences and North African influences. And I take advantage of being in Savannah because it's right where the ports, where the ports of the first settlers came here right in that area, and they brought all these different spices and cooking techniques with them. I mean, the Africans came and, you know, taught everybody how to grow rice and the Indians with corn, and I really just pay attention to that heritage of it, Mm -hmm. and I really try to highlight that. Another thing that you mentioned was when the restaurant first opened and people knew that you were a black chef. They came into the restaurant expecting your food to be soul food. How do you sort of negotiate those expectations that people had? I, I mean, I guess it's what people are used to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I would probably call my food soul food until, you know, a, my grandmother would eat it and say, no, that's not <laughs> what it is, you know. <laughs> But being a black chef, I remember at the farmer's market when I first got down there and right when we started telling people we were opening up a restaurant, I was talking to this guy who sells um, watermelon juice at the uh, farmer's market, which is delicious. And I said, yeah, I'm opening a restaurant. He goes, oh, yeah, we need another soul food restaurant downtown. (laughs) And I'm like, well, it's not really soul food. And I think just people assume, they just assume that that's where, you know, where I'm coming from. That's my point of view. Right. When I was looking, because um, The Gray was one of the restaurants that was our one of our 50 best new restaurants yes. last year. Yes. Um, and uh, luckily I got to eat there on my little restaurant dining oh, cool. tour. Oh, nice. Um, and I was looking at the list of the top, our top, what we call the top 50. And... You know, you were the only black woman chef on that list. Mm-hmm. And it's like, is that a reflection of reality or is that we're not looking? We, we have like this blind spot. We're not looking in the right places. Uh, that's such a good question. Um, I think we're I, I don't think there, there are that many. I definitely know that there are some a lot out there. I don't know of many. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially because I've just been in a bubble, but um, there are a lot of female, black female chefs out there, and I think we are few and far between. But um, I don't know. I think maybe I don't know. I don't know. 
So one of the things that I thought was really amazing about the gray, it which is so rare to find, is it is the complete package. Mm-hmm. Like it is like this amazing, interesting food that is sort of nostalgic in a way. It reminds you um, of things you've had before, but as if they've gone on some sort of European yeah. vacation and then returned to like the Carolina gold rice <laughs> yeah. um, ingredients. So there's the food, there's this incredible space, great service, all these little details down to like the little candies that come yeah. on a tray at the end of mm-hmm. the meal. And it all seems very um, like organically connected. Like, did you feel influenced by the history of this 1938 bus terminal when you were thinking about what your menu was going to be like and what the sort of vibe of the restaurant was going to be like? I do know when I walked in the space, if I felt connected to it. And when I met my business partner, we felt connected. And I think the way we connected was eating at home and hospitality. Hmm. And I think we both wanted to provide a space where you can kind of come in and you just eat and have fun and enjoy. And you, you know, you sit at the front bar and we'll shave you some charcuterie and you'll have some, you know, cheese and, and dip and nuts and olives and have a cocktail and then you go to the back and you can order dinner and you still feel like you're in someone's home, in someone's space. And we just wanted to take care of people when they came to to eat with us. And now that you um, have like broken through to these purveyors and to the community, and um, do you feel like you've made it over the hump of that first year or do you still feel like you're getting settled into Savannah? I'm still getting settled in. Yeah, there's I there's so much to there's so much. I'm just I just know it. I can feel it. I feel like the people that we're using now are are very good at what they do. But um I went there's an island called Asobwa Island not too far from um Savannah. And there's a woman who lives on it and she's been there all her life, and she sold it to the state of Georgia in agreement to live there until she died. And so now she's 104. And so every year on her birthday, they have a party and they have a pig roast. So on this island is this heritage breed of wild boar. And it's very indigenous to the area. It's They're from Spain. The pigs are from Spain, and they came to Georgia, and now they're just sort of like running wild on this island. And they shoot them. They just, they don't, you, you don't eat, no one eats them. They don't purge them. They don't take them off the island to sell for anything. They just kind of shoot them and, you know, and that's it. What? And so, like, <laughs> one of the things that I wanted when I went down, I'm like, I want to use these pigs. And they're yeah. a little bit smaller than normal pigs. And um, I was just like, this is what I want. So I, I ended up going to one of her birthday parties before we opened, which back in 2014. And I met a man who has Georgia certified Asabar pigs. So I thought, boom, he's going to give me these pigs. We're going to open up with these pigs and we're going to have like Harris Neck oysters from Georgia. We're going to have Asabar pigs. We're going to have Georgia shrimp. This is awesome, right? So 
No, I reached out to him and there was nothing. You know, he's like, okay, yeah, we'll call you. And I'm like, okay, I'm here. I'm waiting. We open up in two weeks. He's like, okay. And he just emailed me a week ago. Oh, my <laughs> Said God. Said he had these pics for me. And, and now I'm like, all right. And so that's just an example of how it's been. It's sort of like you get introduced and you plant a seed and it has to grow. It literally, you have to water it or you just kind of set it and forget it. And then all of a sudden somebody comes back and they're like, I'm ready now. And you're like, okay, okay, great, okay. <laughs> so they're kind of like on this. And I, that's why I know like there's so much more yeah, it's to a the long food. Game. And that, yeah, it's the long game. It's not the short game. There's so much more to the food in that area. I am only scratching the surface. Well, Mashama, we got to move into the lightning round. Oh, no. Okay, let's go. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you a series of either or. Okay. And the only thing is you have to choose. Okay. You can't have both. Okay. West Coast oysters or East Coast East oysters? East Coast. <laughs> East Coast are briny and salty and everything I like about oysters. Are you into like Virginia oysters? I'm into um, Malpax. I like um, Duxbury oysters. Mm -hmm. And I really like Harris Neck oysters. Hmm. Yeah, Georgia oysters. Do you serve those at the Gray? Mm hmm When you're in New York, dollar pizza or street hot dog? Oh, man. Um, hmm. Street hot dog. That was a tortured response. <laughs> I felt bad for asking you that question. Street hot dog. Does dollar pizza exist anymore? Well, like slice, <laughs> a slice. I, that's a great question. I think if you actually were getting pizza for a dollar at this point, it would just be garbage. Yeah, that's why I'm like, nah. Okay, a slice. I changed it. Oh. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> now we're talking $2 pizza. It's a slice. Great. <laughs> and because... When living down south and doing traveling back and forth with my parents and stuff like that, we used to live up in the Bronx, and that's the one thing I remember my dad taking me to go get a slice of pizza. So that is definitely a slice of pizza. No such thing as bad pizza, except <laughs> for the $1. Yeah. Um, okay, this question actually came from my colleague Andrew Knowlton, and I don't even know what one of these things is, but he said to ask you, <laughs> shrimp and grits or Brunswick stew? Oh. Okay, but first, what is Brunswick stew? Um, I don't know how to explain it, but it's usually made with rabbit or squirrel, hmm. and it has, like, corn in it and lima beans and tomatoes, and, and it's a very sort of southern thing. And I would probably pick Brunswick stew. Interesting. Yeah, it's... Um, you don't see it as often, and you get it super traditionally. I went to a went to the Charleston Food and Wine Festival, and um, Griffin from Southern Soul Barbecue, he um, served Brunswick stew with squirrel. Whoa! Yeah, real country. Ribs or pulled pork? Ribs, ribs. It's just the the way you eat them, and. Um, on the bone and your fingers get all barbecue saucy or rubby and ribs, definitely. Yum. Okay, last question. You could only cook with either of these. Butter or olive oil? Butter. 
scrambled eggs taste so much better with butter. Well said. <laughs> um, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. All right, that was Julia Kramer with Mashama Bailey from The Gray in Savannah, Georgia. And now let's cool down with Carla Lolly Music and Claire Sappets. Guys, it's going to be 97 degrees this Saturday. We all have kids. They're going to want something cold and frosty and sweet and delicious. I know there's a good humor truck. There's Mr. Softy. But apparently we, you can make homemade frozen desserts, Claire. Is this true? Yes. Really? Well, you can semi-homemake frozen desserts. Ooh. Well, I think what we came around to was you can make your own ice cream, but you definitely don't have to. Right. We've and run we've run plenty of ice cream recipes in the past, but I think in summertime there's absolutely no point in making your own ice cream. Yeah. Unless it's like some crazy flavor, but there's so much good store about ice cream and the recipes that we published in August are ways to like dress them up and turn them into something really special and fun, but without a lot of work. So in the August issue, we have a story called Chiller Than Most. I like the headline. And I'm looking at this. It's like a grasshopper cake. What, do you, what, what is going on here? It's like a yeah. mint chocolate chip with like cookies embedded in it. I don't know. I'm yes. very intrigued by this. So this came from growing up. I went to summer camp in Minnesota and the best day of summer camp was when we had grasshopper pie and we would eat mm. it outside on the grass. So that was the inspiration for this dessert. And it's a lot of people's favorite flavor. One of my favorite flavors is green mint chip. Mm. Not just mint chip, but the green. It has mint to be green. green. Yeah. That's yeah. the thing. It, exactly. It, it, it literally, I bet, it, be I bet there's something like it, like your mind literally thinks it tastes better because you, it's green. It like plays a trick on your mind. It's right. just better. Right. Yeah. And so always what I would get from Baskin Robbins growing up. That's yeah. the golden standard. We talked about that. That's the best kind of oh, yeah, right. okay. so, so you buy like a, what, a half gallon of this stuff or something? Or This uses two pints. Two pints. Yes. Okay. Uh, and so a then quart. a quart. Yeah. yeah. Four cups. And then you take uh, one package of Oreos and two thirds of that gets ground up and mixed with a little melted butter and that gets pressed into a springform pan. You could use a tart pan if you had one. And that's your crust. You don't have to bake it either, which is the best part. And that has the white filling too. Yeah, white so filling, which different. kind of just disappears into the the black. Oh, oh so you you grind it up with the filling also. Yep. Yeah, it's a little oh, different yep. than like a chocolate wafer cookie, which right. would not it kind have. of just like binds it all together, which is great. Yeah, great. You barely need the butter, but why not? Right, so you press <laughs> right. that. You press that in the pan. Uh huh. Then what? Then you take the ice cream and you soften it so you can kind of stir it. And the the language that we use in the recipe is until it looks like thick cake batter. So it should mm. be smooth, not lumpy. And we found the best way to do that is to actually remove the whole paper carton and then to cut the ice cream into big pieces. Right, so and, you have this cool trick, which I'd never heard before. How mm-hmm. do, what, do you, what do you do exactly? Well, you have to kind of get all the ice cream out of the container. So I just take a big chef knife and usually it comes in like a, some kind of thin cardboard carton and slice directly through the entire thing and then just peel off the outside and then you have like two half pints of ice cream and just cut that into pieces. Uh, let it sit in a mixing bowl for about five minutes and then just start stirring with a spatula and it smooths out really easily. So it's smooth and then what do you do? I, but I, I, it looks like there's cookies inside the yeah. ice cream. So, so the, the crust uses two-thirds of a package of Oreos. There's like mm-hmm. three rows of Oreos so you put two of the rows <laughs> in Claire the crust. Claire knows this stuff, yeah. This was all, all things we think about. Uh, and then the other third, like the last little row, if you haven't eaten half of them, which was happening, uh, those get kind of broken up with your hands and folded into the ice cream along with our favorite, uh, Andy's Mints, which I haven't seen Wait. since my grandma used to have them Andy's, in the bottom of her purse. Andy's, Andy's, Andy's Candies. Andy's, 
So those are the are those are the chocolate ones with the green yeah, filling they in sure between. Are. Yes. Interesting. Because the flavors here are chocolate and mint. You have mint chip plus Oreos plus Andes. Right. All those. That's insane. Yeah. And then, but that's not all. It's not all. You could get Wait, a, you could get arrested for this, like in the majority <laughs> of states. And then what's on top? So then the one sort of more homemade element to this, because at this point you're just sort of assembling, is this ganache topping that you this is what this is what makes this top. is what makes the cake semi-homemade. Because right now there's <laughs> right. been nothing homemade. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It's a mostly assembly. And then so you take uh, some dark chocolate and some heavy cream, you mix them together. You warm up the cream first and it melts the chocolate and then it has a little bit of corn syrup so that when it freezes, it doesn't freeze so solid. It, oh, it stays yeah, a little chewy. How, I have a question. So um, what temperature do you let the ganache cool to? So when you put it on, the, do you freeze the cake and then put the ganache yes. on? Yes. Yeah. So you let the filling, the filling, yeah. the ice cream set in the freezer and then the ganache is still a little warm because it's, it's liquid. Not it's not hot. Yeah, because right. you don't want to melt the ice cream. Right. And then you spread right. it on and then put it back in the freezer. Right. And yeah. then when you're good to go. And then when you take it out to serve, I imagine you let it sit for five minutes to come to that room. You can sit for a few minutes and the ice cream won't melt that mm-hmm. fast. The most important thing is a hot knife. So get a knife in a oh, little bit I, of... I, I say that all the time. <laughs> the most important <laughs> thing. That's crucial in all of these desserts. Uh, so set the knife in like a little saucepan of simmering water and then just dry it off really well and it will make pretty clean slices. In between every cut. All right, Carl, what are you, what are you making then? If, do you have a go-to frozen dessert? I... I'm a Sunday with an E person Mm -hmm. myself. The thing that I got into, though, was like skipping the whole assembly part and actually having different flavors of ice cream or mix-ins and swirling them and making like your own Ben and Jerry's. So like back in the day when you would go to Ben and Jerry's or Cold Stone Creamery still, you could order your base ice cream and a mix-in. And instead of just sprinkling it on the top, they'll mix it all in on the marble. Was it? Steve's in yeah, DC, and yeah, Steve's. and they have like those like scrapers, and the paddles. Like those, yeah, the paddles, right. and they would just shoo, shoo, shoo. right. So this really reminded me of that of like taking the softened ice cream, taking the mix-ins, and like mixing it together, but not having it just as a topping. So that's what I'm into. I think um, to Claire's point, there are so many good ice cream flavors and so many good ice creams and so many choices that you can do a very low stress. Well, so if you're doing this at home, like dessert, what, what will you have mix in wise? Or so walk me through this. There's two things. One is just getting really awesome ice cream flavors, cookies, all of the toppings. Maybe you make Claire's fudge, which I would highly recommend. Maybe you make your own whipped cream, mm-hmm. right? But everything else is store bought, and then people can do an awesome Sunday bar. People love it. It's awesome. The other thing that you could do, but you, is, don't, you don't have like the paddles in the no. Folded. That's so one you got me concept. So, you got so excited about that. So one concept is like Sunday bar. The other concept is like taking the essence of what Claire did without doing the whole showstopper presentation part of it and deciding in advance that you're going to make your own ice cream flavor and instead of molding it into a fabulous oh. bomb, just like. Put it back into the freezer at that point. Oh, so take so let let it come to room. T- uh, let it warm up a little bit, like you yeah. talked about. Mix Do in all the cool in. stuff, like like the Oreos and other things. Right. Put it back in the freezer, and, and then, then when you're, you're ready like, to serve. You're like, this is you know my signature flavor. So I I, I got my like like if you for instance were to get like really good Georgia peanuts right. with some other salted caramel, caramel yeah, and chocolate and, and be chocolate. like, that's and my Valrona dream. chocolate yeah. and I made my that's own That's my dream in. flavor. Ooh, Nobody cool. makes it. I'm going to like put it together, put it back into like a Rubbermaid or a Tupperware or whatever. So, but that's a fun thing to like go pick out your toppings, pick out your base flavor. Everybody gets to make their own flavor. And I was still impressed. I made 
ice pops. Pops. I guess we're not tech. We can't write popsicles because that's a trademark word. In the you magazine. can write it. You, you just have to be referring to P, popsicles. Yes. <laughs> um, but we did back in our like our second issue we ever did as a new staff in June 2011, our Gwyneth Paltrow issue. Um, we did these really cool peach vanilla cream pops, and essentially. Um, you get some good ripe peaches like in August, which is or July if you're down south right now. Um, four peaches, you make a vanilla simple syrup, just sugar water, and like you split a vanilla bean in there, make a syrup, and then you puree the ripe, the peel, you peel them where you dip them in the mm-hmm. water, peel mm-hmm. them, uh, puree them with the simple syrup, um, and then kind of put that through a strainer just to get any little bits out. Um, and then you fold in like, I think it was like half a cup of Greek yogurt. And some heavy cream, mm. um, and then mix Do you it leave all it up. Swirly? N- no, that'd be kind of cool though. Didn't leave it swirly, but I, I like that notion. Um, and then you sort of pour those into molds and you freeze them, and it has those sort of like we grew up with the orange push-up cream skull mm-hmm. sort of things. Um, and it was I was like, wow, that was easy and really delicious. Totally. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that because Rick just developed for Rick Martinez Martinez, uh, just developed for uh, BonAppetit.com a creamsicle, which is he made orange curd and then did very similarly a Greek yogurt and milk, I think. And vanilla orange curd is what? Orange curd is. Yeah, it's it's orange juice and orange zest Mm -hmm. and butter and sugar and you. And eggs, and eggs, right? Yeah. But he didn't. He took the butter out because he liked the harder texture. Anyway, but that one is striped, and it's oh, going to be online soon. Cool. And uh, like a orange Julius, mm, and it's yes. really cute. Like the stripes are perfect, and because. So I, well, I have a question. Just if you're making like a basic fruit pop, is there a basic technique, Claire, in terms of what the balance is supposed to be? Can you just buy fruit and puree it, and then what? Yeah, I think that it's a great thing to do when you have like a glut of summer fruit or you have summer fruit that's going too ripe and you don't really want to eat it out of hand. But you have like some overripe peaches or some overripe berries. I love that phrase, out of hand. Like, let's not get yeah. out of hand. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at this time of summer, I basically become like a, a fruititarian. Like, it's kind of the only thing I'm really eating because there's so much of it. But sometimes even I, I buy like that so, much. That's so not me. Fruititarian. I, I, I oh, like, I love it. I had like four servings of pasta last night. Oh. It did have sun gold tomatoes, so it, it was summery. There you go. I go fruititarian. I've ba- like I basically am on a two like a for a while I was eating it's kind of embarrassing like two pints of blueberries a day. Wow, a lot. Two. Yeah, it's a lot. Oh, stop. All right, let's anyway, say, let's say I, so let's yeah, say I, so you have a lot of fruit. A big basket of fragrant strawberries that are starting to go. Yeah. And- yeah. I mean, there's not a hard and fast ratio for mm. simple syrup to fruit because it kind of depends on how sweet your fruit is. But don't you need a little simple syrup to keep it from just going icy yeah. crystal? Yeah. The so sugar you could in there, just freeze the fruit puree, but it'll have a very um, icy, like, cold on your teeth, yeah, brittle it'll be hard texture. To eat. Yeah. yeah. I think the basic— so, you, you, so I, I puree my strawberries yeah. in whatever pureeing device I have. Yeah. I might, if I want to, I can put it through a sieve to get all the little seeds Yeah, if out. you don't want the seeds. Or you could kind of puree it and then add some whole fruit and then just pulse for the chunks if you mm. want like, like biting into those pieces. And you, know who, you know who doesn't <laughs> no. like that? The little kids don't like that. <laughs> all right. First of all, you do make a simple syrup, yeah. and you then just mix that in. Yeah. And that's I half think, sugar, half water. Yeah, boiled. I mean, the, at the most basic, you have your few— for your fruit puree, simple syrup, and then always I would add a little bit of citrus. So most mm. usually... Um, citrus zest or citrus juice? You could do both. I would at least just do juice because it mm. helps to bring out the flavor of the fruit and it mm. kind of balances out the sweet. Mm. Like, do you so, mean like 
orange juice, basically. You could do orange, but I usually go lemon. Lemon. So I like the tartness. Like about how much? Or lime. But if you were doing blackberry, yeah, I would do lime. Yeah, Mm, you can kind of customize flavors that way. A little bit, just like a. I would say a couple tablespoons, yeah. yeah. And you can kind of taste for, I mean, I wouldn't make it like incredibly citrusy, but just to bring out the flavor. All right, then what if you do add booze, um, A, give me some good combos that might work. B, how much booze do you add? C, bonus question, (laughs) Mm -hmm. does it affect the freezing temp duration or whatever? Yes. The answer to C is yes. Um, So in terms of flavor combinations, I would do... If you're using tequila, I would combine it with lime, black blackberries, as Carla said, would be delicious mango. You could do vodka, although vodka doesn't have a lot of flavor, so that would really just be adding booze. But you could even do like sparkling wine would be really fun. But I wouldn't add more than also a few tablespoons. Yeah, Yeah, maybe uh, with strawberries. Just give a little Or other berries, yeah, Yeah. it would be really nice. You're not trying to get drunk eating these no, things. No. And if you are then it won't freeze. So, yeah. you won't uh, you won't really be able to. <laughs> but I would just add a couple of tablespoons. And I would just keep tasting the liquid. Like if you're making it in a blender, start with your fruit your fruit and puree that. Add a little simple syrup and a little like citrus, whether it's lime or lemon, until you have something that just tastes really good and then oh. freeze it. Okay, next question. And I know we've sort of um endorsed this in the magazine, but does anyone ever really make granita? I just like <laughs> take the tray out of the freezer, scrape the fork around, put it back in the freezer. Ten minutes later, take it's just that sounds insane. Who does this? I would make coffee granita like today. You would or I you would. have? I haven't, <laughs> <laughs> but my mother has. Well, I mean, but I don't have an ice cream machine, so if I'm going to do, that's why I like for me doing some. You know, I got to like work with things like this where yeah. you're just all you really need is work a, with what I, have. I gotta work with the freezer but I don't know the only time I ever made granita was like an emergency I needed dessert right. in like 30 minutes and it was coffee and I ended up serving it over store bought vanilla ice cream which <laughs> was, I was sense. like because this is what I have but, like but you, it was good but so you, you took like you brewed what did you do I had espresso and then you mix that with simple syrup? With simple syrup, yeah. And, and then, then I put it in a shallow baking dish. I think it was like a glass Pyrex. And you literally have to like take it out every 20 minutes to scrape it up, scrape it around. Yeah, but if, it was a very thin layer, so it froze in like 10 <laughs> minutes. And then I just scraped. <laughs> I do I do like a good coffee granita with a nice dollop of like fresh cream. Yeah, like yeah. creme fraiche is yeah. I especially like it when I'm in Rome and I get it yes. from. And someone <laughs> makes it for you. See, there are certain things that people should just make for you. Right. You know? It's one of those things that like sounds great. Like, 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 I, we, we've told... We've, we have a great recipe for onion rings online, and I came down to the test kitchen. I'm like, these things are amazing. I'm never going to make them, you know? Right. And they re- were great, you know? I know. But weirdly, like, well, I'm looking at the wrong person, but then there's, like, people like Claire who literally would make puff pastry in her apartment. Yes. If given half a chance. Yeah, a store-bought puff pastry is expensive. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm like, I'm just making myself. You know what's also good? Time. Time, time. is money. That's true. Time is I money, know. Claire. That's true. Well, I got time. Um, okay. Guys, everybody, go to bonappetit.com. Check out all these awesome flavors. And thank you, Claire. Thanks. And thanks, Carla. Thank you. See you guys. Bye. This podcast has been brought to you by Belle Cushing and Carrie Polis, with editing by Mitra Kaboli and additional help from Christina Che and Lily Sherman. Our theme music is by Valerie and the Greedies. We have new episodes every Wednesday. And if you want to tell us anything about this or any episode, please email us at bonapetitfoodcast at gmail.com.